Welcome back to Perfect Pitch with Nick Healy Hutchinson and his fresh approach to the world of classical music. Whether you're an expert or a beginner, old or young, Perfect Pitch has something for everyone. I'd like to start with a small request of you. The wonders of the internet mean that Perfect Pitch reaches all corners of the world, some very remote, and nearly half of you, much to my delight, are now listening in the United States. Whether you're a regular listener or a new one, I'd be very grateful if you could recommend the podcast to just a few people. It will only take you a few minutes and would be the best way of demonstrating the wonderful feedback you continue to give me. Edward Lear's Owl and the Pussycat neatly encapsulates where I want to start today. Two unlikely suitors falling for each other with the aid of a little music on a small guitar. In reality, of course, the human race is the only one able to express feelings of love in words. Animals must rely on sound or touch. You may not have met your true love yet, but if you have, can you remember how you made your feelings first known? Was it verbally? Or the written word? Or maybe a single gesture? Perhaps you're creative enough to have created something like an artefact of some kind. The opening line of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is given to the young Orsino to reflect his passion for the Countess Olivia. If music be the food of love, play on. On its own, it sounds like Shakespeare is equating the two, but in this instance, Orsino is actually asking for more music to try and quell his love for Olivia as a means of trying to get over her. No one would question that love can be conveyed in music of whatever genre. From his own personal perspective, few did it better than Robert Schumann for Clara Wieck. Not yet married, they were apart in the autumn of 1838 when Schumann left Leipzig for Vienna, so there was plenty of gooey correspondence, but also little gems of music like this arabesque for the piano. Two clear emotions come to the fore here, longing and desperation. Allowing them both to come through can be tricky. Take it too quickly and you lose the longing. Take it too slowly and you lose the desperation. Neither must be suppressed by the other. Here are the opening bars of two examples, so you can see what I mean. The brilliant Yevgeny Kissin is in the fast lane, and one of the greatest of all, Arthur Rubenstein, is in the slow one. The thing is, they are both beautiful renditions on their own, but to this listener anyway, neither gets whatever the musical equivalent is to the Goldilocks approach. And then I found the combination of what I was looking for, played in a live performance by Vladimir Feltzman. Here is a pining heart and a desperate urgency. It's perfect. 
One last thing. Schumann completes the piece with a brief and utterly exquisite postlude, which is a sort of summation of the whole thing. I love the way Feltzman ensures that this is a wholly different passage.
Lucky Clara. I mean, imagine getting that in the post and being able to play it yourself. Having written 39 operas by his mid-thirties, Rossini was in the fortunate position of being able to put his feet up and retire. He wrote very little in the second half of his life, but one of my favourite of his compositions is his setting to the hymn Starbat Mater, the title coming from the first line Starbat Mater Dolorosa, meaning the grieving mother was standing. It tells of the moment Christ's mother stands at his crucifixion. The subject is obviously about as grim as it gets, but Rossini nevertheless manages to infuse it with his usual freshness, so much so that some thought the music not appropriate to its content. As an opera composer, you'll not be surprised to hear that it has an operatic feel about it, rather like Verdi's Requiem does, in the way four soloists mingle with each other, as well as with the chorus and the orchestra. Good old Wagner was typically scathing about it, but he was barely out of his shorts at the time, and still struggling to get his music appreciated, so I think we can overlook his view. And you may remember how Rossini got his own back in later life, by describing Wagner's music as having some lovely moments, but some awful quarter of an hours. Rossini started composing the work in 1831, but was soon suffering poor health, so would dip in and out of it for the next ten years. In all, there are twenty verses of three lines each, and it's bursting with lovely tunes. We're going to listen to one of them now, Cuius Animam Gementem, sung by Juan Diego Flores. It might start darkly, but Rossini just can't help himself. Rossini is held by many to be one of the great underrated composers, and by just as many to be one of the most overrated. I'm still undecided and open to persuasion. Thank you. 
It's pieces like that which demonstrate how you don't need to subscribe to any Christian belief to appreciate the wealth of music dedicated to religion. And here's another. Schubert wrote six masses with varying degrees of loyalty to the Latin text. It really doesn't matter if you believe in a superpower or not. When you listen to this, the Sanctus, sung in English by the choir of St Paul's Cathedral, the troubles of the world can be put on hold for a few minutes. In the Latin Mass, of which Mozart wrote 17, the Sanctus is followed by the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. 
One of Mozart's most popular is the so-called Coronation Mass, its nickname coming as a result of the Court of Vienna using it on royal occasions. If you recognise the tune, it's because 15 years later, Mozart uses exactly the same one for the Countess when she sings her first aria, Dove Sono, in The Marriage of Figaro. The final words, Dona nobis pacem, grant us peace, and swell by a choir, could scarcely be less entreating or pleading. They come over more as an exuberant demand. The Agnus Dei is sung here by Emma Kirkby.
Sometime in the 1730s, the Italian Baroque composer Antonio Vivaldi composed his concerto for lute and strings. Actually, we can't be certain he was composed for the lute, but that's now become accepted wisdom. We're going to finish today by listening to it in full, in the traditional fast-slow-fast format. The slow movement, I think, is particularly lovely, with a meditative feel about it, which I expect you may well recognise. This is a really vibrant account, played by one of the all-time greats, Julian Bream. But before we do listen to it, don't forget my small request at the beginning of the podcast. Wherever this may find you, if you enjoy the music I share with you and the thoughts that go with it, please let others know as well. It'll only take you a few minutes to send a link to a handful of people, and if you want to write a review or rate it, that all helps as well. Until next week.
Thank you.